Open your Bibles, please, to Malachi chapter 2. A few years ago, uh, before he moved on to other ministry, in fact, he, he could still be here this for the conference, one of the pastors you would have the opportunity to meet used to go out and play golf, and he would go to the golf course by himself with the hope of getting put in with some other people that he did not know, so he'd have a chance to witness to them and, and uh, get acquainted with them and witness to them. And uh, he, uh, one of the things he used to say when he would do a bad golf shot, he, you know, preachers aren't supposed to cuss, so he'd say, if somebody would cuss, I'd say amen. <laughs> I, ho- I hope he comes, I hope he's here in two weeks just so you can say, is this really true? Yeah, it really is. And so one time he said that, and a, an older woman who was part of his foursome just let out a blue streak. And he said, well, amen. <laughs> I probably learned to choose his words a little more carefully. Uh, preachers aren't supposed to cuss. You know, people are watching. When I was in college, we, 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 we debated this extraordinarily important theological topic, trying to figure out what we were going to do if we couldn't cuss. And we came up with a cuss word for preachers. And the cuss word is puppies. We would say puppies if something bad happened. If we hit our thumb, we'd say puppies. This last week, I just about hit the puppy. Instead, instead of saying puppies, I was working on my shed, trying to hold a 4 by 8 piece of siding up and get a nail and get it just right. And my dog is running back and forth like a wild man trying to impress the backyard dog, you know, we've told you about and he's running right up into my feet, and I can't hardly hold this thing. And I reached out to touch him <laughs> with my hammer hand. And it's a good thing he's quick, or I would have whacked him right on his behind with a hammer. Now, that, I, know, I know that's not a right thing, but, you know, pu- preachers get upset. And as I reached out to touch and he ran away, I looked up, and my neighbors have a balcony right up there. And they're standing there watching. <laughs> they're watching the preacher build a shed, you know. I thought, oh, Lord, I'm glad I didn't whack that dog. <laughs> I don't know if they perceived how angry I was. Pastors and their families are watched not only by church people, but by everyone who knows them. We call this living in the fishbowl. You know, fish in a bowl and everybody's looking in to see what's going on. Some pastors and their wives and their children chafe under that kind of what they believe to be an unfair situation. They think we should be just like every other Christian. We should be able to do whatever we want. We should be free of scrutiny. But the truth from God is this. Pastors are supposed to be examples to the flock. We're supposed to live in a fishbowl. In today's passage from Malachi chapter 2, God is going to speak to the Old Testament equivalent of a pastor. They called them priests in the Old Testament. And he is going to speak to them very harshly because they were not being good examples to the flock. Follow as I read Malachi chapter 2. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, 
I will send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and he turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. Today, we're only going to consider the first half of this passage. Your notes starts out with point number one, and there is no point number two. That's going to be in two weeks when we come back to the second half of this passage. And so as we begin, we look at the recipients and he says, Now, O priests, this commandment is for you. The priests were the spiritual leaders of Israel. They conducted the temple worship. They read and taught the law to people. You have to remember in the Old Testament times, people didn't have a Bible in every home or in every hand. And so they would come to uh, the temple at different times and the priest would read the law. We even read about them giving the sense and explaining the law. You know what that is? That's a sermon. They preached out of the law. They preached to people. That was part of their job. And they were judges. As in, uh, the people of Israel lived by the law. And so if somebody wronged them, they would come and say, Hey, my neighbor... My neighbor stole from me. And they would look in the law and see what the law said about stealing. They would try to establish the facts. Then they would make a judgment. One of the things we read right at the end of this passage was they were being partial in their application of the law. They were not being fair. They were judges. They were, they were preachers. They were temple worship leaders. And as such, the priests set the spiritual tone for the nation. You see, we've, we've been reading in the first chapter of Malachi about defective worship or defective sacrifices. They were bringing the lame and so on, uh, animals that were illegal according to the Old Testament law. They were not proper to bring for worship. And so when we think now about the particular part that the priests played, they set the spiritual tone because when the people would bring a defective sacrifice, they had the opportunity to reject it and teach them what was right. Or they had the opportunity to say, oh, it doesn't matter, just come on, bring it on. They either had the opportunity to go along with the people or to oppose the people and stand for God. Uh, they could rebuke or they could go along. Their leadership either upheld God's will or tore it down. Now, before I go on and before you get real comfortable with this sermon and settle back into your seat and think that I'm only preaching to myself and the Revs, you know, we've got uh, Rev Larry, Rev Ralph, Rev John, and Rev Bill besides Rev Dave. 
I want to challenge you with the broad principle of leadership which applies to us Christians in this era in which we live. And it starts with a principle from 1 Peter 2.9 which says you, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood so that you might offer sacrifices, uh, praise to His name. You are a royal priest. Look at the person next to you for a minute. They're a royal priest. Look at, your, look at your son or daughter that's a believer and say, wow, they're, they're a royal priest. Do they look like royal priests? Here's the question today. Are they acting like royal priests? You are a royal priest. What does that mean for you and God? It means you can minister directly to God. Why do we have a what we call a worship part of our service, it's because God says we are to be continually offering praise to His name. You, when you sing, if you do it with your heart, you are praising God. You are just like an Old Testament priest who would, who would take the knife and shed the blood and put it on the altar. You are doing just as much worship, in fact, more worship than he was doing because you are offering praise to God's name. When you take your wallet out and put your money in the offering, if you're doing it with a, with a heart for God, you are offering a sacrifice to God. I don't have to even be here for you to worship. And I know I'm, I'm part of the team, but you don't have to have me to worship. I'm not your priest. I'm not your go-between. There is one between man and God. It is the man Christ Jesus. And if you know him by faith in him, you worship him directly. That's the first and foremost thing that it means for you to be a believer priest, a royal priest, part of a chosen generation. Secondly, though, to be a believer priest means you can minister directly to someone else. These people don't need to come to me to confess their sins or to have me pray for them as though I have a better line to God than you do. You can talk to God just as well as I can. And you can sit down and pray with them just as well as I can. Oh, I know my language might be a little more flowery, but that doesn't mean it's any more sincere than yours. And that's what God is looking for. We can all minister directly to God. We can all minister to one another. And we can all minister to unbelievers. You can pick up the word and preach it, maybe not as fancy as I can, but you can sure share the truth just like I can. You can say, uh, did you know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and so on? And You can lead people to the Lord. You can minister directly to them. What does that all mean? It means all Christians are influential spiritual leaders in some circle. Now, obviously, I have a broad circle of, of influence here in the church. You're all sitting there listening to me teach. Your circle might only be this big, but there is a circle. Your circle might be those few kids that are down there on Wednesday night in your room. Your circle might be the, the kids on Wednesday night that are up in that room, the youth group. Your circle might be the ladies at M&M's. Your circle might be, could be all kinds of circles. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready to give every man an answer or a defense of the hope that is within you. We, God expects all of us to influence people for Him. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul some of the scariest words in the New Testament, he says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Would you say that to somebody else? 
hey, you follow me and I'm going to follow Christ and I'll show you the way as he shows me the way. You know what? You should be saying that to somebody. In fact, what I'm telling you today is that is true in your life whether you think it is or not. There are people watching you. If they know you're a Christian, they're watching you. Some people who don't know you're a Christian, they're watching you because your life has a look to it that they haven't seen before. I was talking to somebody here recently about their workplace. And they were talking about somebody they're trying to uh, discuss the Bible with and influence for the Lord. And, And they were basically saying, you know, I have become an influence for this person like so-and-so influenced me to come to the Lord at work. And you know, that's, what, that's what's always going on, whether you know it or not. We all have a circle of influence. Some of us are husbands. We have a circle of influence. Maybe I should say we should be having a circle of influence. We do have one and we should be exerting it. I'm going to step way out on a limb here. Some of you might be a boyfriend. And you should be exerting a circle of influence for the Lord in that relationship. Do you think somehow when you get married, you're going to magically become spiritual? (laughs) Some of you are parents. You have an automatic circle of influence. You know it. When you start seeing your kids act like you, think, oh, Lord, please help my kids to be better than me. You hope they copy the good and let go of the bad. I, I got bad news for you. It doesn't work that way. Some of you are Sunday school teachers. Some Awana workers. We have some deacons here. We have some pastors here. We have some Bible study leaders. And we could go on and on. We all have a circle of influence. And God wants us to use our circle of influence for Him. When I was a youth pastor, I remember sitting on a bus or a van driving somewhere and I'm talking to this kid who's not a believer. He used to attend our youth group sometimes. and He was talking to me about another kid at school who had gotten, gotten caught doing something bad. You know, He was messed up somehow. I forget what it was now. Maybe he was drunk or something like that. And this kid, who's an unbeliever, said, I used to really respect him. Now, I can bet you dollars to donuts that he never told that kid he respected him. Because kids don't say that. They don't go, hey, wow, I really respect you, man, for not drinking. But they're watching. There are people watching you. And you have the opportunity to influence them. Just like these priests in the Old Testament did. And so God says, look, I have a message for you, priests. I have a warning. What is the content of the warning? In Malachi 2. Here's my summary of the content of the warning. Repent or be disciplined. Repent or be disciplined. The word repent means to to confess and to give up sin and to turn in the opposite direction and, and live righteously. Look at what God says to them in particular. He says, Now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear and if you will not take it to heart... To give glory to my name. Then some things are going to happen. He's warning them. He's saying, listen, will you take me seriously? What does God have to do to get us to take take him seriously? In today's language, they blew God off. They said, who's God? You know, whatever. You know, hey, I know he's got all these rules, you know, but it's good enough. 
They, they blew it off. And he says, listen, if you won't listen to me, there are some dire things coming your way. Uh, one commentary that I read this week put it this way. Is it possible that Christians might unintentionally develop a contemptuous, contemptuous familiarity with God and the things of God? Can we fall into a routine of church attendance and activities performed regularly and lose sight of the one whom we approach. Is it possible that we just go to church, kind of go through the motions, and we forget that when we're sitting here, God is the audience? You're not the audience, you know. God is. Somehow it's possible for us to get so familiar with things Frankly, that's been one of the great blessings of going to Africa, to see such a different society and such different living conditions. I have a whole new appreciation for you as a church and for my house that I live in and so many other things. Um, what a great blessing it is to get shaken out of my routine. It's possible for us to go through the motions so often that, that we lose heart, we lose the real sincerity. God says, listen, you need, you need to be taking this to heart. You need to be paying attention. And what does he say will happen if they don't take it, take it to heart, if they don't start giving glory to his name by genuine spirituality? He says, I will send a curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you don't take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. This is some of the most severe and, could I even just say, gross language in the Bible. God says, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to curse you. God says that he can either bless or curse and in fact, way back in the book of Deuteronomy in particular, God pronounced blessings and cursings and he gave people a choice. You know, when we, when we used to discipline our kids, we gave them a choice before they got to the discipline. We would say, do you want a curse? That is, do you want a spanking? Well, then behave right. Do you want a blessing or a cursing? Here's a choice. It's yours. That's what God did with the people of Israel. Back, They, they came out of Egypt. They, they came up through the wilderness experience where they didn't believe God about going into the land. And finally, they're there and they, he repeats the law. And he says, now look, here's the deal. I'll bless you this way and I'll bless you and I'll bless you and I'll bless you and I'll bless you. But if you don't follow me, I will curse you. I will curse you. I will curse you. I will curse you. God told them right up front. Some people think God is not fair. He's extremely fair. In Deuteronomy 28, he laid it out all for them. So when we come to Malachi, come all the way to the end of the Old Testament era, and when he says, now listen, if you guys don't get right with me, I'm going to curse you, this is not a new truth. This is an old truth that now he is activating. And what kind of curse, how does he particularly apply it to them? Look at verse 3. I will rebuke your descendants. Um, you may have the word seed there in the King James Version. 
And the word seed is, is, is in relation to the physical process of creating descendants. And it probably refers to that. It could refer to a couple other things. But it seems to be that he's saying, look, you think it's a big deal to be a priest? And you think it's a big deal for your sons after you, the tribe of Levi? And, you know, it's your job to be the priest. He says, I'm going to rebuke you. Your descendants are not going to live. In other words, they're not going to be born I'm going to rebuke your descendants. I'm going to stop your lineage. That would have been a huge, huge deal to them. And then he says, I'm going to spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feast. There were certain parts of the animal that were not sacrificed. They were not burned to God. And it had to do with the internal organs and the, the refuse in those internal organs. And they were taken out and dumped on the garbage pile outside the camp or outside the city. And you know what God says to them? He says something like this. Warren Wiersbe summarizes it. You're treating me with disrespect, so I'm going to treat you like garbage. You don't value the priestly ministry, so why should you be in office? Now, for those of you who have known the Lord for a while, you're thinking, wow, that's awfully harsh for God to talk that way. God was so upset with their poor leadership, with their sinful leadership, that he said, I'm just going to get rid of you. It almost seems to be that he's saying, look, I'm going to put garbage on your faces. I'm going to put refuse on your faces. And there's a, there's a, a story in 1 Kings 14 where God said this to Jeroboam, I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. In other words, if you saw a bunch of stuff laying here, you could tell which part of it's garbage and which part of it's good. And if it's got animal feces on it, you're thinking, that's garbage, let's toss it out. God says, I'm going to spread feces on your face. And they're going to toss you out with the garbage. Wow, that is so harsh. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. Is God that serious about righteousness? Look at Hebrews 12, verse 6, verse 5. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. This is a quote from the Old Testament, by the way. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and He scourges or whips every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate. You're not even a son. Here's the simple truth I believe I've put in your notes. God loves you too much to let you live in sin. Because when, when you're living in sin, you're essentially living in the garbage. Now think about it with a, a parent and a child. Do you let your children grow up being liars? How... I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if I said, raise your hand if you think it's perfectly good for your kids to lie whenever they need to. Say, man, nothing makes me more angry than when my kids look me right in the eye and just lie. 
And you, you do your best to train them not to be liars in part because you know when they grow up, it's not going to go well for them if they're liars. You love them too much to let them grow up being liars. Do you require your children to learn certain skills like reading? Do you, do you make them sit and practice their reading? Oh, you tyrants, you ogres. Well, you do it because you know as an adult, if you can't read, I mean, it's, it's hard enough to keep people from taking advantage of you when you can read, but if you can't read, you're going to be at the will of whoever comes along. I think that happened to me on a train in, uh, in, in I don't know, wherever we were, Italy or somewhere. Went to get some stuff to drink. I wanted a couple of bottles of water and a couple of bottles of juice. And so I, I had to walk through like five or six train cars, and I get back to the to the place where they're passing that stuff out and I said how much two bottles of water two bottles of juice I think it was 15 euros you know what that figures out to in dollars about 23 24 25 bucks for two bottles of water and two bottles of juice I was thinking about that this morning I think you know I think that gal could tell who the Americans are and who the others are who will say no way that is not right she just took advantage of me. I mean, if that was the regular price, who boy, I don't want to live there, you know. You want your kids to read because you know it's important for their life. Do you make your children respect authority? Well, you try because you know someday they're going to have a boss they're going to have to answer to. You do all those things because you love your kids. Because you know these things and many more are the best for them for their whole life. And that's what God's doing for you. He looks down at your life and He says, you know, that sin is no good. It's got to get out of your life. I have to train you not to live in that sin. And so what does He do? If you persist in that sin after the warning. And by the way, do you know how God warns you? Well, one of the places is right here in this pulpit. And one of the places is when you read the Bible day by day. And one of the places is your friends and loved ones who say, you know, you probably ought to take a real second look at that behavior. God always warns. But if we don't listen to the warning like those priests, he's going to come along and do what he has to to get our attention. And from my experience, especially by observation, God starts off. Like we start off with a little kid, which is a little slot on the behind, just to remind them who the daddy is. And if the kid gets in line, everything's cool. And if the kid doesn't get in line, one of our kids one time decided he didn't want to put his coat on. And he didn't want to go home from church. When he was about that tall, I said, let's go, put your coat on. The same routine we always use. Do you want a spanking? He knew he had to comply or get the spanking. So I spanked him. Okay, let's go. Do you want a spanking? Six times. Hey, friends, do you think God's going to give up after one spanking? 
What did he say to those priests? If you won't take it to heart, then it's going to get way worse. What he says to them is what I would call the extreme of God's chastening. It's way on the extreme end. God doesn't start there. God doesn't start with a two-by-four. I, I talked to a pastor friend of mine who, who fell into to moral sin with somebody in his church, and I said, I, for my own instruction, I was saying, did God warn you? Oh, yes, and he enumerated the warnings. But he just walked into sin. Hey, folks. If you ignore the warnings, read that Malachi 2 passage several times this week and, go, and read that and go, whoa, I don't want that to happen. I had a person sit in my office a long time ago and basically just say, to paraphrase it, I'm going to live in sin. <laughs> I said, man, that is the scariest thing. I don't want any part of that. Folks, God loves you too much to let you live in sin. He knows that righteousness is the place of blessing. That's why He works so hard to get you to come to faith in Christ. That's why He won't let go of your life until you come and say, Okay, I believe. I repent of my sin. I embrace Christ as my Savior. God's not going to let go of you because He loves you too much. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. Not only does God love you too much to let you live in sin, God loves the church too much to let a member live in sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. He says, in your church there is sexual sin that is worse than the world. I can't imagine that. Verse 2. And you are proud... And you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken from you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, I have already judged him who has done so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I can guarantee you, if I stood up and say, we need to deliver someone to Satan to, for the destruction of his flesh, that you'd go, oh, Pastor Dave, that's kind of severe. But why does he say that? Look at verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you, are, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. What is he talking about there with the leaven? You know, leaven, uh, yeast, in our day, we would call it yeast. He says, you put a little bit of yeast in the, in the lump of dough and the whole thing raises up. He says, that sinful member is a little bit of sin in the middle of the church and it is affecting the whole church. Hence the statement that I started with, God loves the church too much to let a member live in sin. And so what does the Apostle Paul tell the church they should do? He says, you should kick this guy out of the church. I think the best understanding of turning him over to Satan is put him out in Satan's world. In other words, this, the church gathered, not the building, but the church gathered is God's world. And we encourage each other and we help each other. And when there's struggles, we, we help and do what we can. 
He says, put that person out to where they're on their own in the unsaved world, and then Satan can have his way because there won't be Christians to support and encourage. Now, why does God tell them to do that? So that that person will see how bad their sin is. If a person comes to church every week who's, who's committing what we would call incest, and we say, well, good morning, brother incest. How you doing? Glad to see you. Won't you sit here beside me and worship God? And when we go like this to known sin in our church, we are not loving the brethren. Do you think that's good for a person to live in an incestuous relationship? Well, absolutely not. We need to treat our brothers on a partial level, the same way as God treats us. That's what he wants us to do. In fact, we are part of his disciplining process. When we look at another brother and say, you are living in sin and it's not right, we are the hand of God or the mouth of God from his word. Oh, that's hard. But God wants to use us. The priests in the day of Malachi were themselves giving such sinful leadership that that wasn't happening among them or in the congregation of Israel. Now turn back with me to Malachi because you need to, you need to understand the grace of God here in this process. In Malachi 2, verse 4, he gives us the reason for this severe warning. And it's very important. He says, then, then if they would obey this warning, then you shall know that I have sent this commandment, or excuse me, if they won't obey the warning, they would know it because he would condemn them. And he says, the reason I'm doing this, the end of verse 4, is that my covenant with Levi may continue. Well, what's the covenant with Levi? Well, God made an agreement with Levi based on two incidents. I mean, God chose them to be the priests, but they came through for God in two particular incidents. One of them was, was um, at the incident of the golden calf when Moses went up to get the law and the people made this idol of a golden calf and they're worshiping it. And, and when Moses came back down, God said, kill all of the idol worshipers. And you know who stepped up to the plate and followed God? The, the tribe of Levi, the men of the tribe of Levi. And so God says, I have made a covenant with him. And in particular, we see him make a covenant with, one, uh, with, uh, with Aaron's grandson in Numbers 25. In Numbers 25, there was another similar situation of sin in the camp of Israel. And a man named Phinehas, who was the grandson of Aaron, the priest with Moses, he stepped up to the plate for God. Numbers 25.1 Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Verse 2 They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Do you have that picture in your mind? They interacted with the people of Moab to the extent that they were having wrong, illicit, sinful sexual relations with people they weren't married to and they were bowing to idols. Look at verse 3. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. That's a, a name of an of a, of a idol god. 
And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who are joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Now the name of the Israelite who was killed and who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Selu, the leader of the father's house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer. He was the head of the people and so on. Now that's a, again, that's a harsh passage of scripture. 1 Corinthians 11 says, these, these things happen for our examples. What does God want you to learn? He wants you to learn that he takes sin seriously. Do you? When you look in your life, you say, oh, it's just a little sin. You know, we, we've even incorporated this into our language. We have little white lies we have a whole category of lies we have we have uh, perjury that's when you lie under under oath and then we have regular lies and then we have little white lies and then we have fibs they're hardly a lie at all just teeny you know what god says look folks i take sin seriously and phineas was a guy who said Hey, this is the right thing. We have got to obey God. We've got to step up and do this. And because of it, God made a covenant with him. He says, you're, the tribe of Levi, your descendants, they are going to be the priests. Now, when we come to Malachi chapter 2, what God says is, look, I want my covenant with Levi to continue. What does that mean? What it means is, is that God says, I intend to keep the covenant if I have to take this whole generation off the planet and start with the next generation of Levites, I'll do it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. Do you think God does that with Christians? News for you folks, God takes sin seriously in this New Testament era as he does in the old. He never asks us to put anybody to death. And if you're ever tempted to follow, and I, I say this with all seriousness because I see Christians, they get sucked into these weird groups. If you are ever tempted to follow somebody who's trying to go back to that Old Testament and say, we need to kill people in the name of the Lord, you are wrong. 
God will never ask you to do that. But that doesn't mean that God won't put some people to death directly. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another one builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can one lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. When you become a Christian, it's Jesus Christ that you believe in. That is the foundation of your life. Verse 12. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. God says you can build in your Christian life with him, with the Spirit's power. You can build righteousness. You can do it in the church. You can do it in yourself. And someday he will reward you. And that reward is likened to gold, silver, and precious stone, which cannot be burned up. But it's possible for you to come to Christ and then to choose to live in sin. And he says in verse 15, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him? For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 5 about sending him out of the world. Let his flesh be destroyed that his spirit may be saved. If you are a true child of God who falls into living in sin, God is not going to cast you out of his family. But he does say your life might end. In 1 John chapter 5, he says there is sin that leads to death. I do not say you should pray for that. In other words, he says there are some people who are going to come under such severe judgment that they will die. 1 Corinthians 11, he says, when you take the Lord's Supper, you should be careful because if you are sinful and you fail to judge yourself, God says he will bring sickness and even death to some people. Does God take sin seriously today? Uh, Now, I I, I don't mean to to just scare you today, uh, you know. I think you know that I, I enjoy life and I enjoy you. And... But you know what, folks? Sometimes we just don't take God seriously enough. And that's what these priests were doing in, in the day of Malachi. They said, oh, whatever. And God is calling them and he's calling us to say, look, there is a reason. There are numerous reasons But in Malachi, I believe the reason that he is calling them back to righteousness is this. Have you heard this old saying? Everything rises and falls on leadership. The church version goes like this. A church never rises higher spiritually than its pastor. Do you think I like that phrase? That's a tough one. Uh, What about this, based on Malachi 2? You are either helping or hindering your family, friends, and ministry toward Christ. 
You're either helping or hindering. There's no middle ground. There's not a place where you can live and just say, hey, you know, don't look at me in this fishbowl. I'm just doing my thing. You just do your thing. There's no place like that. There's no place for parents like that. There's no place for Sunday school teachers like that. There's no place for deacons like that. There's no place for husbands or wives or children. There's no place like that for the Christian. We need to say, God has called me to influence people for him. And part of the reason, not the only reason, but part of the reason I must live righteously is so that I can influence others for the Lord in a good way and not a bad way. God knows the importance of leadership and God wants you to be a good leader for him no matter how small your circle of influence or how large your circle of influence. I would challenge you this week to memorize a very simple verse, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ or follow me as I follow Christ in some translations. More than memorizing, I would challenge you to meditate on that verse. To get up in the morning and say, God, help me to see how I am being a good example or a bad example. To ask God to help you see your role of leadership and how you can be a better spiritual leader. And if you'd like to read about somebody who was absolutely honorable in hard situations and became a great leader, read about Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. A guy of whom no rebuke is ever given in the scripture. And he became a leader who saved his own people, Israel, by God's help. Heavenly Father, this is a, a, a harsh and severe passage of Scripture that you've brought us to this week, and yet you want us to see it because you want us to see how much you hate sin and how important it is for us to lead in a godly way. Father, help us to do it. Help us not to hold back any part of our life from your scrutiny. Father, I know what it feels like to to realize you have failed in your example. And I pray that you won't let any of us become so focused on failure that we stop trying. Help us to get back with you and move forward and become a whole church full of leaders in all of the places you've called us to. I pray in Christ's name, amen.